This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Welcome to the Heartland Daily Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Lakely, Vice President of the Heartland Institute, and my co-host is Senior Editor Chris Talgo, and we are happy to have as our guest today, Brian Kilmeade. He's back on the program again, I think for the third time. He is the author of the new book, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and Their Battle to Save America's Soul. Brian, welcome back to the Heartland Daily Podcast. I appreciate having me on. Yeah. Um, so this is this is the uh, the third time we've had you on the podcast. We're actually going to bring up your other books here in a minute in our in our discussion. But I was struck by the um, the something in the news happened that made their, their subtitle ring with me, and it says their battle to save America's soul. Uh, Joe Biden just used those words the other day at that uh, town hall on another network that nobody watches. Uh, and he had stated out, outright that he is convinced that he is the one who is elected to save America's soul and to, uh, and to restore decency in our country and to help unite our country. And so when, uh, I see the title of your book and I see what's happening, uh, right now in Washington, D.C., I thought, well, the book has it right and, uh, our contemporary politics and president have it wrong. And there's really no comparison. I mean, uh, number one, he brought up that well, we're a white supremacist, the fastest rising danger in America. It's totally wrong. Uh, when you see how far America has come, that's what you should be talking about as, as an aspirational leader. Kind of like the President Obama of 2008, not the one of 2021. We're light years better. The field is much more level. Uh, considering where the world was and where we were, the distance we've come is phenomenal. Instead of giving us too much credit, we give ourselves no credit. Yeah. If, uh, this generation is the worst ever. White people should renounce their citizenship or announce their or embrace their privilege. Uh, and I just I, I'm astounded uh, every time I dive back into these projects, how little clue people have to how far we've come and how special this place is. So, uh, Brian, I'm just going to dive right into the book. And, um, you know, Frederick Douglass, he was born a slave. Abraham Lincoln, he was born into uh, abject poverty. However, both of these people overcame overwhelming odds. So what does this tell, what does this say about their remarkable rise uh, and the American dream? Well, I think it says everything. And and that's just it. I mean, you talk about overcoming things. Everyone's overcoming something. Everybody watching right now. And then also people have the impression, well, America used to be a meritocracy, not anymore. Uh, you can't really accomplish everything you want. Really? Uh, back then, there was a hierarchy. Those guys in Virginia, James Monroe, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams of the North, and then George Washington, uh, you know, John Quincy Adams. They were, you know, that was a clique. You know, that those were the guys. Those are the founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton. You know, you, you, know, you kind of had to knew the, know those guys in order to get somewhere. But then as everything started spreading out, as America started growing as a country, as they started dying out, you had an emergence of uh, self-made uh, men. Like Andrew Jackson probably stood out more than most because he came from the so-called Midwest back then, which would be the East Coast now. You know, he was orphaned at a young age. His, uh, you know, the British did wipe, basically wipe out his family. He, well, there was no social safety net for him, and we know what he accomplished. Uh, two-term president, general, uh, self-taught lawyer, uh, senator, everything that he accomplished, uh, a war hero. And then that's why I really love this story, is that if you – 
if America needed saving, it needed great people. And they had two great people. But who would think that uh, a gangly, uh, a gangly kid from the Midwest whose mom died at the age of nine, who had one formal year of schooling by two illiterate parents, uh, even his stepmom, who was very supportive of him, was not could not read, but she saw some potential in him where the father just wanted him to work all day. And he basically licensed out his son. On the other side, Frederick Douglass obviously had it much worse. I mean, he was uh, he had the worst possible existence. He never even knew his parents. He says he was visited twice by his mom in the middle of the night. We're not sure if that was uh, a fantasy or not, but bottom line is, no family. Didn't have a pair of pants until he was eight years old. This guy's licensed out to different uh, uh, families, and then he would be sold off uh, onto a uh, onto a field, and he would work brutally for all those years. But what he was de- determined to do is learn how to read and write, and he manipulate his way and do chores in exchange for, and try to use his personality to learn more and more about and educate himself. And as soon as he educated himself, he realized how much more life can be. And he was determined to live it. And after failing once, he completed it the second time. He escapes to freedom, still. Uh, you know, still a slave. He had to fight for his freedom. Within seven years, he's a best-selling author, a known lecturer, known around the world, inspiring uh, a country, inspiring African-Americans, free and enslaved, that you could do more for yourself. I mean, who would ever write this story? Hmm. I mean, one of those things that's got to be done on a three-hour miniseries, uh, and no one would ever believe it. They have to make up these characters. But it happened. And these two men pushed each other to be better, they would meet three times, appointments four times, and when they did combine, they were forced that couldn't be stopped. Well, Brian, let's let's get a little bit more into that relationship. I mean, obviously, uh, Frederick Douglass knew who uh, Abraham Lincoln was, and uh, Abraham Lincoln knew who Frederick Douglass was uh, long before they had met. Um, you know, Frederick Douglass was was quite well known at the time. Uh, and when they finally met, maybe you could talk a little bit about about their meeting for the first time and how their relationship um, evolved over the years that were left for them to have a personal relationship as uh, as Lincoln was assassinated and uh, how that might have affected the way both of them looked at each other as men and the country as a whole. Well, uh, Frederick Douglass not only would write his biography, he would also start his own newspaper. And he'd be the editor and chief writer of it. And he would constantly comment on how Lincoln had all this potential, but was letting him down. He wanted to Lincoln to come in, emancipate all the uh, slaves and start over again. Get rid of the Dred Scott decision. Uh, forget about the Kansas and Nebraska Missouri Compromise. Uh, let's uh, the fugitive slave law. Let's just fix it. And you can't do it that way. America wasn't ready to change that rapidly. And in fact, when he becomes president, uh, seven states leave the Union before he gets to the White House. Mm. And the first thing he wants to do is put it back together. Douglas is upset about that. He's like, what are you talking about? Then he gives his speech, and Lincoln's like, guys, you can keep your slaves. I'm not going to do anything. Just come back together. You can't secede. Come back. The, the, the Confederate States of America would have no part of it. They were done. He couldn't even believe there was an overture there. He's like, what are you doing? You were elected to change things. We saw your Lincoln-Douglas debates. You were somebody that was going to be different. You saw the evils of uh, slavery. Why would you cut the deal? When he learned that Lincoln had to be patient, timing was everything. If he went ahead and emancipated the slaves, did everything Douglas wanted, he'd have no country. But little by little, this war starts, and after uh, initial frustration, waited for a big win, would emancipate the slaves, would would begin to get on the fast track, almost becoming almost an abolitionist in his fury to have freedom for all. But, you know, he was a man of his times, not equality. 
to the point where Frederick Douglass said, you know what, I'm helping recruit for this army. I finally convinced them to allow blacks to fight. My own sons have signed up for the 54th Massachusetts Inventory. I'm going to go see Lincoln. So he goes to see the Secretary of War, get, basically gets an offer to be an officer, and then he gets online at the White House expecting to spend the whole day there, sends his card up. As soon as Lincoln sees it, he stays online all of two minutes. And this African-American enslaved just uh, less than 10 years ago is meeting one-on-one with the President of the United States. <laughs> and the first thing he said is, uh, Frederick, my friend Frederick. And they sat down and they talked and they debated. And immediately you'll see it in his autobiography and you'll see it in the President of Freedom Fighter. He looked at him and saw the honesty and integrity and the lack of racism in this man. And a lot of the criticism had been unwarranted. But it was not held bitterly, clearly by the body language and words of Abraham Lincoln. And they would work and they'd be honest and candid. And he, one of the comments uh, Douglas had was, he definitely is worthy of the title, Honest Abe. They talked about the different things he was going to work on, what he was going to do, and how they needed Frederick Douglass to recruit. He said, hey, I got this letter here that says it's going to be an officer. He goes, let me, cut, let me initial it for you. And he initials the letter, you know, uh, Lincoln. So he comes back and he has realized he's got a great friend in the White House. And they start working together and talking about informing the South that these slaves are free and these African-Americans no longer have to do what they were doing. How do we get that message out? How do we cause an insurrection in the South? Mm -hmm. And they said, the first thing we got to do, Frederick, I got to get reelected. There's not one person running that wants this war to continue until we win. And they work together. What are your objectives? Your objective is to win. Why? Well, your objective is to free everybody. But you're not going to free everybody if he loses. So Lincoln knew there was a process. Douglas understandably knew there was uh, there was a thirst for an equal playing field, and then he would grant he would grow to understand that Lincoln uh, had patience and was smarter uh, uh, politically than Douglas. They would meet two more times. They were supposed to meet a time in between, but Douglas had previous plans, believe it or not. <laughs> and then when it came to the inauguration, he was invited to sit at the podium and then invited to the ball. Yeah, and then. He, one of his comments was in their final interaction. He goes to see uh, he goes to see Lincoln. Lincoln spots him. He clears everybody out. He says, "My friend Douglas, what did you think of the speech?" He said, "You don't care about what I think of the speech. You got a room full of people. Don't worry about it." He goes, he goes "You're the person whose review I I I, I seek most." And he said, "Mr. President, it was a sacred effort. While critics said it was too short and didn't talk about great victory, Douglas understood you cannot." celebrate victory it was about unification right right yeah and i was just i was thinking about that as you're talking brian it's the uh, lincoln was obviously right that if he lost re-election you know the result would have been a negotiated settlement of some kind which would have never freed the slaves which would which not a single african-american in the country would have been in favor of and and yet you know, uh, we see today that people are find statues of Abraham Lincoln and other founding fathers problematic um, because of, uh, you know, his views on, uh, you know, blacks and whites and, and their place in society was not up to contemporary standards. But the reality of the situation on the ground in, uh, in 1863, 1864 was that if uh, Lincoln either uh, keeps the union together and the, and the slaves are freed or what so many that were against Lincoln wanted was a negotiated settlement and the United States of America uh, exists in a much smaller uh, way and in only in the north and that there's a there's a slave country to the south of us. Yeah, I mean, you realize what had to happen for us to come back together. It must have been so improbable at the time 
to think that they could bury the hatchet, to think that the best way to do uh, Grant and Lee when they finally would meet is to say, you know, uh, swear allegiance back to the Union and let's call it a day. Obviously, the execution of the reconstruction of the post-war was not effective. I think fundamentally it would have been much different had Lincoln lived. I think about that. The more you study, the more you realize, man, how different America would be today had Lincoln not, uh, John Wilkes Booth not done what he did. And I think there's no single person uh, from Hitler on down that did as much damage to the American people as John Wilkes Booth, because we needed the greatness together along with Grant. We might have been able to flood the South with teachers and housing Mm. and maybe I know for sure smoothed it out as much as possible the transition. But instead, we we uh, had a, as a vice president a guy that wanted to uh, the country to go back to the way it was. Yeah, you keep your slaves. He was a man of the South, right? And just an evil guy. Uh, president, you know, he was assigned to go to unify the South. Big mistake Lincoln made, and we had to live with it. And uh, yeah, these guys had to react quickly in their time. The push and pull is what I try to bring out in the book. I think you did an excellent job doing that. And Brian, this is your your sixth history book, and you also host a series on Fox Nation called What Made America Great, which I highly recommend. Uh, so obviously you care about history and telling the American story. And uh, I taught U.S. history for five years, and I was absolutely shocked at how uninformed high school students are regarding our nation's history. And I was also alarmed with the, revise, with the uh, rise of revisionist history. So I think this is a huge problem, and I I applaud you for trying to address this. And I, my question is, how do we solve this? I just think it's it's got to go with schooling. Uh, it's got to go uh, with selling. I think it's got to be the responsibility of the politicians. I would love the polit- these uh, political figures on both parties to start with the fact that it's a great country. We want to make it better rather than it's a bad country and we got to fix it. And I'm embarrassed by it. I mean, in my lifetime, that's all switched. I think that we just got to, you know, and I'm, I'm hardened. I think we can. When I see the passion people have on these school boards, I realize as busy as people are, when you affect their community and their kids, they will react, you know, without any act, you know, because it's because it's our future. And I think if it starts in the schools in grade school, we take a look at this curriculum. We understand that uh, would, you know, maybe set up some parameters for it. Uh, we start with a whole new generation. At the same time, we do our best to make history more accessible with documentaries and features and movies based on this stuff. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And you know, speaking of movies and popular culture and getting people involved, your your books, Brian, are so are so compelling because they they you talk about the characters of history and their role in shaping the United States. Um, you know, we had you on to talk about your book on Andrew Jackson. Uh, uh, we had you on to talk about your uh, your book about uh, Sam Houston. And these are these are men. All right, they're men. Yeah, they're men from history that we learned about um, in our generation. As uh, we're older, um, I'm 50, so uh, you know, I'm of that generation where we learned about these things. But you also have characters, and you have a character in this book who's a, obviously a real life person. That's John Brown. Um, and I think unless you're from Kansas, you probably don't know a lot about John Brown. Um, but uh, I think probably even today, every kid in Kansas learns about him. Uh, once you talk a little bit about John Brown, he was obviously, you know, a radical. Uh, you know, he's revered by some today, um, admired for his radicalism and applied in different ways today, I think, by a lot of people, uh, some people on the left. 
uh, and some and some revile him and think that he went, you know, he was too much of an extremist and that, you know, that he was certainly treated that way in his contemporary times. So why don't you talk a little bit and let our listeners know a little bit about what you learned about John Brown and put in your book? Well, look, he's definitely a little crazy, but he's definitely sincere. He was definitely fearless, had a bunch of kids. Uh, he was like an uncle to Frederick Douglass's kids. It was in a, a cell of his body that was racist. He thought that every man and woman were equal. He was horrified by the thought of slavery like we are today. And he was willing to take action. And with a couple of sons, he comes in and he's able to uh, put together a military operation that fails spectacularly. And he wanted to get, uh, and ultimately, ironically enough, it would be Robert E. Lee that would help, would help end the insurrection that John Brown put together, that he was going to go in, uh, take a, a weapons depot, take over a city, uh, and free slaves in the area. And hopefully those slaves would take up arms against their oppressors, his words. And uh, instead he got stopped. This guy, he had the element of surprise and blew it. Then he got stopped. He ends up getting arrested and uh, hung, but he was very proud of what he did. And he was very proud that he was willing to fight to free the slaves. And it just further underlined the sense in this country that this we cannot exist like this, that this whole insurrection, the freedom of slaves is the fear of slave owners. Uh, there were 350,000 and four million slaves, number one. And John Brown was going to take action. He's like, these are human beings. Every bit is equal to us and they should get their freedom. Well, the slaves didn't know what to do, the ones he was exposed to and the ones he was fighting with, they got brutally murdered. So he ends up getting hung, but uh, for an admirable cause. It would be ironic years later when Abraham Lincoln would tell Frederick Douglass, hey, can you find a way to get to the South and inform the blacks that they're not, they're not enslaved anymore? They have their freedom. Just come north. It's pretty much the John Brown plan. Mm-hmm. Only this was years later. We're more ready. And Frederick Douglass had the backing of the U.S. government, not a wild-eyed guy from the north. And Frederick Douglass knew all about John Brown, and he was linked to John Brown. And they said, Brown, you know, we've, we've arrested Brown. We've killed everybody else. Now we're going to go get Douglass. The paperwork is everywhere. And he had John Brown all over his house and different paperwork, but he never – he considered but never really joined the insurrection. So they tried to have him arrested. Thankfully, there was a uh, a, a train conductor that tipped him off. They're, they're out for you. You're wanted. He was able to get messages home to destroy all the paperwork that he might have been involved. He wasn't involved, but there was paperwork showing that they met. And he had to go and live in another country for a while. Hmm. But his country, these are the series of events that take place from this, the arrest in the Missouri Compromise, the Fugitive Slave Act, the Dred Scott decision, uh, the, the Texas War, where Texas comes in the Union and as a slave state, even though that wasn't why they fought the war. They come in as a, technically a slave state. And it sets, it sets off the balance. And then you have John Brown insurrection. There was this sense in this country we were on edge. And when Lincoln won and beats the Southern Stephen Douglas because there were so many candidates mm-hmm. and split the vote, and Lincoln wins with no Southern votes, zero, with 40% of the overall vote, I mean, this country was just going to be ripped apart. And John Brown was part of it. Yeah. Well, you know, when you talked about, uh, you described the actions of John Wilkes Booth being, you know, one of history's greatest calamities. He didn't use those words, but I think that's that sums it up. I mean, obviously, I'll take it. yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, it got me thinking of alternate histories, right? I mean, what if John Wilkes Booth, you know, uh, was foiled, uh, or his gun misfired, or something happened? You know, that that it didn't work out that he assassinated Lincoln, and it makes me think, you know, what about what about slavery? I mean, the 
obviously hundreds of thousands of Americans gave their lives in the Civil War and slavery ended in this country. Um, and we talked, you know, I brought up a little bit ago about how if Abraham Lincoln lost, there might have been some kind of negotiated settlement. It just got me thinking, how long do you think slavery would have survived in the United States? Was was Could it have been outlawed? Could it have been negotiated away? Could it have been sunset in some way? Or was the only way to end slavery in the United States through blood? I mean, I'm willing to debate it. I can't pretend to know. Uh, I mean, I mean, I'd love to sit down and 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 knock out theories, and and try to read as much as the main characters possible. Mm-hmm. With the Underground Railroad taking place, with the push for the female vote, the women's vote also taking place simultaneously, uh, the sense that of equality and freedom uh, pulsating throughout the the country. 1760, I think it was, when England got rid of slavery in their country, mm-hmm. but not in our hemisphere. Haiti was still all these. There was slavery everywhere around us. So there was a sense that things were changing in the world. Could we have done it without killing each other? Wow. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, if there was a Southern president, nobody would have done nothing would have happened. I mean, I, I can't picture, you know, the South willingly giving it up. I mean, what Lincoln tried to do is write a big check. Listen, I understand that's your economy. I understand there's no machinery. I understand that you know they they are working your land. You're 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 dead tomorrow without them, and you didn't get you didn't choose this way of life. You were born into it. This is what what was happening. So let me pay. I'll pay you for your slaves. I mean, we'll we'll pay you. Look at this property. Give them their freedom. I'll pay you on this property. And there was some talk on that, so we could debate that. You know, could they have been paid off to to actually hire people instead of enslaving them? That's a thought, isn't it? Yeah. So could that work financially? You know, was most of the money in the North? Yeah. With the banks in the North? Yeah. With manufacturing? Was steel in the North? Yeah. What the South had was a rural community. They had the farms. They had the food. They had the clothing, uh, the textiles. Mm -hmm. But the North had everything else. So it's hard to believe that the South wouldn't have been infiltrated by Northern banks and manufacturing and people transitioning off the farms and then saying, what the hell are we doing? Yeah. How do we rationalize this horrible act in the land of the free and the home of the brave that's known as a beacon of liberty? I would hope, but I'm hard enough understanding the mindset of what actually happened, <laughs> let alone projecting what might have happened. Yeah, and we still have slavery on the earth today in the 21st century, so I think the answer is uh, not hopeful without blood. So, Yeah. So, uh, Brian, you know, your, your book is about a racial reckoning that took place in the uh, mid-1800s. And many people would say that we are going through a uh, modern racial reckoning here today. What parallels do you draw between what happened in the lead-up to the Civil War, during the Civil War, and after the Civil War, and what's going on today? Well, I think that one thing, with Frederick Douglass and with Abraham Lincoln, he had two extraordinary leaders who came at the exact right time. You could argue FDR did the same thing. Washington, no question, did the same thing. You know, we had great generals step up at the right time. Uh, you know, you, you you constantly have seen that. Um, I think we need people to lead us in and focus and try to get elected with not just people with agree with them, the people that don't. A less polarizing figure that doesn't want to maximize their vote wants to get every vote. Uh, so I think we're polarized with ideas. But I don't think we're on the eve of a civil war. I, I just think we need less polarizing figures 
uh, people with the mind and people to rediscover our past and present, uh, people to travel around to understand how great we have it because they maybe don't have a perspective on how great we have it because they haven't been anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think, you know, this is definitely at a uh, div- divisive point in our rhetoric. But, you know, you know, Trump made huge, obvious mistakes and he had huge, obvious successes. A lot of the things when he turned over the tables, it ended up working. Mm-hmm. And he came with those fresh ideas. And then Biden comes in with civility and experience. And all we see is poor execution after poor execution. And, and ignoring of one of the, you know, the biggest, the most egregious things ever. And that's not securing our own border. What was more important as a leader? So there's some obvious mistakes. Trump made so many obvious mistakes. There's not, there's not a subtle mistake of looking back at Eisenhower and saying, man, I don't know if he handled the Egyptian crisis correctly. You know? <laughs> uh, this is like, but Trump did so many good things. I'm waiting for the stability, the adults in the room to act like adults in the room. If we could get a figure that we could differ on decisions instead of visions, I think we'll begin to come back together because we have so many fundamentally great things going on that I just think we have, we have lost perspective because of the wars, because of the 9-11 attacks to begin with. I think it really started with the Clinton, uh, since the Clinton impeachment on personal behavior, which is abhorrent, which should that have happened. Then the wars, uh, the 9-11 attacks, uh, the Iraq war where people are, no, you lied, no, you lied. Why'd you make me vote for this? Of course, you, you said this on weapons of mass destruction. Did they deserve a war? Did we like the way it ended? Okay, more controversy. The 2000 election, more controversy. The governor of the state is the brother of the future president who decides that state went for the future president and he's his brother. Obviously, people are going to be bitter. The 2016, people said this was, there's no way uh, Trump won still. In 2020, Trump says there's no way the other guy won still. So if we could get some clarity on these issues, I'd be, I think we'd be pleasantly surprised how quickly we came together on the others. I totally agree. And I also uh, wonder what what role identity politics and, you know, this this, uh, you know, Marxist, uh, uh, you know, march that's taking place, what what that is doing to the people and how that is dividing us and not uniting us. Yeah, I mean, isn't it crazy? We're not talking about I'm trying to think of a subtle issue. Missile defense. Remember the MX missile in the 80s throughout my high school? Oh, should we have an MX missile? Yeah. Missile defense, Star Wars. Should we invest in there? Great intellectual debates on this. Um, um, when you talk about stem cell research, I mean, is it right? Is it murder? You know, Nancy Reagan says this, and uh, every liberal says that, and they agree with Nancy Reagan. Okay, it's interesting. Let's debate it. But my goodness, do we want a do we want socialism? Really, we're twenty eight trillion in debt. Can we afford another two trillion? Or, you know, more when you consider the 1.2 that's coming in? Of course not. You know, can you get the ships unloaded with 60,000 truck drivers short? You think we can get a truck driver school going? Mm. I mean, there are some really basic things that were blown. I want to get back to where it's really a fun conversation where two smart people can have differing ideas and engage each other on the merits of the other. Where there are so many obvious mistakes. I mean... Should, you know, I mean, going back, I, I agree with 85% of Donald Trump's policies 
almost none of his approach. Yeah. And I like, uh, I thought he did some really good things, but he went out of his way to allow critics to put, to take him, like, he put his chin out all the time. Yeah. Unnecessarily. And then this guy, uh, this current president, doesn't even seem to be trying. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what is going on. How could you tell a country that's energy independent to stop being it and then beg the Middle East for oil and wonder if the three of us should sit down and discuss the pluses and minuses of that behavior? It's not even worthy of us. Yeah. You know, natural gas burns clean. We came up with fracking, 1970s. Frackers, the wildcatters of the day. Great reason for pride. Instead, I want you to stop drilling. Right. I want you to stop doing it. I want to let Russia give natural gas to our allies. I don't want to give natural gas to our allies. I, I'm like, I, it, make, it makes your head spin. If I'm you're, just stupidity. Yeah, if, you, if you were trying to undermine and kind of ruin the economy yeah. and, and, and push down the United States, I, I can't think of what you would do differently than what the Biden administration has done since, and, since and inauguration. And the one thing I want to say is I'm not saying Republican or Democrat. Right. I'm just saying this is not hard. This is not hard. We've all been in classes and looked at seminars and go, wow, man, I'm in awe of that lecturer. I can't keep up with him. Where did he come up with that idea? You know, if I'm just sitting in a biology class, I'd be like, wow, I can't believe how much I don't know. When I see this picture dictionary types of right and wrong that most eighth graders can figure out and they do the they pick the wrong choice and we got to live with it. It's maddening. It makes people nuts. Yeah. And if you if you want to be humbled in modern society, read the very words, read the autobiography of uh, Frederick Douglass word for word, and you'll see how much smarter. I mean, heck, a, a primary school student in, in the Civil War, one of the great memories I have of the Civil War series by Ken Burns was they they were reading these letters at these soldiers who were, by today's standards, uneducated and almost illiterate by our current, what we would call illiterate by our current standards. And they wrote um, clear prose, um, and sometimes very beautifully. And today we can't match what a, uh, you know, what a, what a, a farmer who stopped getting uh, education at the age of 12 can write back then. Uh, no question. In fact, you really got it. When you look at, read uh, Frederick Douglass's quotes, they're thick. They're thick with words and thick with descriptors. And you got to go, okay, let me take a step back. What does he mean by this? Mm. I mean, that's how smart he was. And that guy had to teach himself most of this stuff. He had to do errands to with uh, for white kids in order to maybe get a book or a magazine. And that's that's the thirst to learn. So I'll take any kid in the inner city, just give them the rudiments of education, enough to want to know more, and that'll begin to change. That's one thing I walk away with the book. Mm. Education is everything. And we take it for granted. Oh, my goodness. I got to go back to school, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. What, what do you mean you got it? Of course. You're an American. You go to school. What if every grade you had to fight for, every book you had to manipulate to acquire, you had, when you went to read, you had to hide the book and they gave you a thirst to learn more? And now, as usual, I don't fall to our generation, but we take it for granted. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we have just have a little bit more time with you here, Brian. I just want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, Frederick Douglass's life. You know, the, the 13th Amendment was, was ratified. Um, but, you know, as a lot of people in the South thought, those are just words on paper. That doesn't mean anything. Um, and then, you know, life began to unravel for, for black people, um, including Frederick Douglass, for the remainder of their lives when they thought, um, you know, that the country would protect them and that wouldn't happen. And I want to I want to tie that into asking you maybe what do you think Frederick Douglass would think about the Black Lives Matter movement of today and what's happened in our our city streets um, in the summer of 2020 and what happened even at the Capitol on January 6, 2021. 
um, it seems like a lot of the people, at least in the in the uh, summer of 2020 on the streets, the Black Lives Matter movement thinks that um, conditions in the United States are not much better than they were when Frederick Douglass was alive. Um, and I wonder what he, if he if he is looking down, uh, thinks about all of that. Um, what do you think he might have thought about all of that? Number one, he's not for taking a step back. He thinks there's something wrong. He's going to step up. And he would say it to black people as well as white people. Now that you have your freedom, I'll paraphrase. Now show everybody you deserve it and earn it. Doesn't mean you stop working hard. That's the big picture. Uh, when things like uh, George Floyd things happen, he'd be the first one protesting. But to say all cops are bad and all white people are terrible, he would have stopped you in your tracks. He would have pointed to people in his lifetime like Garrett Smith, William Lloyd Harrison, John Brown, uh, 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 Will, uh, William White. These people that stood up for him, fought with him, all the, all the African-Americans that fought alongside uh, their commanding officers uh, in the war, that they, they had mutual respect for each other. You have to don't make universal statements. Number two is he was always fighting for equality. If he saw equality, he would have been out there. But he wouldn't have overreacted and made statements that white people are white supremacists. They are people of privilege because of the color of their skin. Uh, black people uh, deserve equality. That comes out of his mouth in every sentence. But black people don't deserve more like white people don't deserve more. So I think he had a much better perspective, which... A lot of these extremists don't want to hear from Frederick Douglass or Booker T. Washington. Mm -hmm. This self-reliant, self-made man. What Condoleezza Rice said last week, I don't want uh, I want a black child to revel in their blackness, but I don't want it to be at the expense of uh, somebody else. I don't want white kids to feel guilty about things they had nothing to do with. He was very, very direct about that. He wouldn't have made it into this country bad. He makes it into this country can be better. My view. Uh, but they don't want to hear from him. You know, they, they don't want to hear from a guy that said, I have every opportunity to leave the country and I'm going to make the country better. So, you know, there's there's an extremist out there that uh, that I think that resonates more with the younger generation that I don't think is going to embrace Frederick Douglass, but they should. Hmm. Could not agree more, Brian. You know, it's not a zero sum game. It's not black versus white. We're all Americans. We're all in this together. And I think that's one of the things that Abraham Lincoln really understood. And he, you know, made sure that Americans under, understood that as well. You know, his house divided against itself speech, uh, e pluribus unum. What do you think about today where we are versus, you know, as, as a nation where we were back in, uh, the, the days of the Civil War? You know, yeah, I, I, when I read this, I had to, when I, I worked in this for over two years, right? So obviously we all read this stuff. We see about slavery. I was looking at Booker T. Washington for a long time, born a slave. You remember soldiers walking in, told the to report to the main house, and they said, you're all free. And they walk out of the house, and they go, great, we celebrate. And then they said, can we come back? We have nowhere to go. <laughs> so I, I, I understand it, you know? So I, I haven't lived it, I can't imagine it, but I understand it. But it's unbelievable that a country you think so much of could have been so narrow-minded and not see the, the, uh, the brutality of slavery in it and the horrible way in which it was allowed to exist. Sometimes you got to walk away. You read it, you got to walk away and go, oh, my goodness, it's too much, too painful to imagine. But then you say, look at the progress. Wow, look at this, look at this, look at this. Look at the colleges, look at the integration, look at the, the schools, look at the most famous respected people in the country. What color are they? 
you know, why is it that I grew up thinking Louis Armstrong was the coolest, was the best in music? Muhammad Ali was by far my idol up until 10th grade. You know, Luau Cinder was my second converted to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I never saw color. Most kids don't. And you want to now teach them in second, third grade to apologize for things they had nothing to do with, to ask them what me being white or black or Hispanic means. I think it's just terrible. Because you could read this and see the progress, or you could read this and see why did we start this way. Yes, absolutely. So, um, Brian, what, what are you looking at? Uh, this is your sixth book. It's called Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and the, Their Battle to Save America's Soul. Brian Kilmeade, uh, this is another great book of, uh, of, your, of your histories that you're doing of, of, of the United States. What do you have your eyes on for your next uh, book project? I don't, you know what? I, I just like when you, I think you guys asked me this last time. I had an idea about Andrew Jackson, uh, but I had no idea what I was doing next and ended up with Sam Houston, but I really have no idea. I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I got to see uh, what the future brings. You know, it's, everything has changed so much in just the last time I did the last book. True, true. Well, thank you, Brian Kilmeade, for being on the Heartland Daily Podcast. If you uh, enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. And do check out Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and their battle to save America's soul. Thanks for being on the podcast, Brian. Thanks, Brian. My honor, guys. Uh, thanks, guys. Appreciate it.